0: There's a line in that song, uh, and my desire is to honor you forever. My desire is to honor you forever. Is there anything, is there anything sweeter, is there anything better than to have the desire to just love God? And you have that desire, you have that, the want to, you have the want to to be here, you have the want to to grow, you have the want to, it's there. And when it's there, What's better than that? What is better than the desire? What happens when it's not there? What happens when I just don't want God? What happens? What happens... What happens in your life? What happens in the life of a church? What happens when a pastor feels that? I want to talk about that today. Satan thinks more true thoughts about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime. Think about it. Satan thinks more true thoughts about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime, and God is not honored by it. The problem with Satan is not his theology. The problem with Satan has to do with his desires. He, he just doesn't desire God. He doesn't want God Our chief end is to glorify God, and we do so most fully when we treasure Him, desire Him, delight in Him so supremely that we just let good and kindred go and display His love to the poor and the lost. I think that's a great quote from a book written by a pastor named John Piper, and the title of the book is, When I Don't Desire God. (laughs) When I Don't Desire God. It's a great definition of spiritual growth, isn't it? Making much of God, making much of God by loving him and desiring him and delighting in him so supremely that that just spills over into my other relationships, spills over in my love for others. And can you think about your spiritual journey? Can you think about your walk with Christ and the seasons that you've had, especially perhaps early on when you, know, you experience this learning curve This learning curve, you learned, you learned first of all that the God of this universe is not some angry judge ready to slap you down, but rather he is a loving heavenly father. How does Jesus begin the Lord's Prayer? He teaches us to begin the Lord's Prayer not with our almighty creator in heaven, but what? Our father, our father in heaven. We worship a loving father. Do you remember the learning curve when it finally got to you that God is not this angry judge? He's a loving, loving, generous Father. And what about, what about learning about grace? Do you remember that? When you first learned about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Do you remember that? That our Father does not give us what we deserve. He's generous. He doesn't want any to perish. Do you remember? What about, what about when you picked up The Bible, and you started reading it, and you realize that it's this is living and active, it's connecting, it's feeding your soul, it's feeding your spirit. Do you remember that? That it's not just an ordinary book, it's not just a book of human origin, it comes from the throne of God. Do you remember the learning curve, the rush of grace? And then what about the day it finally dawned on you, it finally hit you that this gathering here is not the assembly of the arrived? You do remember. It's not the assembly of the right. We are just a we are we are a gathering, we're a room full of recovering sinners. That's what we are. This is the this is the recovering sinners room. And and you're not welcome unless you're a sinner. <laughs> okay? So welcome. <laughs> okay? And your pastor's a sinner. But we realize, really, when you really realize that, and so when you come into this truth, you don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to prove in front of anybody else because we're all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Do you understand what a significant truth that is in terms of desiring God? That okay, we don't have to. We don't have to compete against one another. We're one family family of recovering sinners who have been redeemed by the very Son of God. I'm telling you, that's where growth took place, and that type of learning led to loving and growing and a heart for God and a heart for others, and, and then, and then, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but and then after this high learning curve, after this rush of grace and joy and love and desire, something happened. Do you remember that? Do you remember? Something happened. And it's hard to, it's hard to really put your finger on it, but it's hard. It's just, the experiences even emotionally, just, you know, they just weren't like they once were. And, and you'd come to church, you'd come to this room, you'd come to this place, and, and, and you're, you're trying to figure out what's going on because it's not like it used to be. It's like, well, it, it's, like, it's like you've or we've or it's like, and the word that comes to mind is the word stalled. Stalled. You felt stalled. Last fall, one in four of you told me that about yourself. Last fall. Last fall, we we took a web-based survey called Reveal. And last fall, 25% of, of 25 of the 200 of you that took this survey, which is a pretty good representation of our church family, by the way, One in four of you told me that that's exactly where you are, stalled. And here are the kinds of quotes that describe someone who is stalled. Quotes like, I I believe in Christ, but I haven't grown much lately. Or, I feel like I've lost momentum in my spiritual growth. Or, I feel rudderless and dissatisfied with my spiritual life. And, And many who experience this typically come from the earlier seasons of Christianity, the exploring Christ, or even the growing Christ, but not all. No, not all. And you know, this 25% one in four figure is a, you know, was a snapshot in time taken when you were sitting in front of a computer, computer screen answering questions at a point in time last fall. That was then, that was then. And since then, some of you who have felt stalled no longer feel that way. Others who weren't stalled then now feel stalled now. And still others who felt stalled then still feel stalled now. See, we're all here. The pace of growth has sputtered. The needle on the compass feels broken. And emotionally speaking, emotionally speaking, you, you can't sing what we sang. You can't feel in your heart, I, my desire is to follow you forever because you don't desire God you just flat out don't desire God and of course the question the question that someone like me wants to know and I'm sure you do too is the question why why is that why why wouldn't I desire God how does this happen and and what and what we learned from you is that there are some reasons and here are the top four the first being priority priority issues 80% 80% of you who are stalled say that the reason why is just because I personally have not made spiritual growth, loving God, loving people, a priority in my life. I just have not made it matter enough. Thank you for the candor. And, and, and that will cause someone to stall when you just, eh. Sometimes sin issues will too. You know, inappropriate words, inappropriate actions, inappropriate relationships. 12% of the 25% of you who say you're stalled, 12% of that 25% group are told us that you're in an inappropriate relationship. You will not grow until you cut that inappropriate relationship loose. You won't. Some of you talked about addiction issues, gambling, porn Substance abuse and how those issues have have been a barrier to growth and you 're right they will and and then a, a a fourth reason just has to do with uh, emotional issues emotional issues um, and, and it got me thinking about. Peter Scazzaro's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, where he wrote, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally mature. You cannot separate spiritual growth from emotional growth. They go together. And, and uh, an excellent, excellent section of his book talks about the different levels of emotional maturity. And I've included um, descriptors of these levels In your take home sheets. And I want you to see which zone you see yourself in. All right? He talks about those who are emotional infants, like physical infants. An emotional infant looks for other people to take care of them more than they look to take care of others. Their emotional infants are driven by the need of, for instant gratification. Much like a baby, a newborn baby, they have instant gratification. I want the bottle now. I use others as objects to meet my needs. I'm, I'm unaware. And the, the, the physical infant is totally clueless as to the effect they have on others because they don't care. It's just because it's not in their capacity to care. They just want it now. And likewise, someone who is a an emotional infant. They're just unaware. They're clueless as to how their behavior affects others. And people sometimes perceive them as inconsiderate and insensitive and self-centered. Emotional infancy. What about emotional childhood? An emotional child, like a physical child, when things go their way, you know, everybody's PT keen and content and emotionally well adjusted, but stress. Anger, anxiety, tragedy enter the picture. They quickly implode, have a quick meltdown. And someone who's an emotional child interprets disagreements as personal offenses, easily hurt by others. When they don't get their way, they complain, bellyache, withdraw, drag their feet, become sarcastic, take revenge. What about emotional adolescence? What about that? There's another zone A physical adolescent knows the right way to behave in order to fit into adult society. And so uh, someone who's an emotional adolescent knows how to do that. But they can feel threatened and alarmed when offered constructive criticism. They give love. They know how to give love. But they keep track so that they can later then, you know, they make deposits so that they can make withdrawals later and... And, and when there 's conflict, someone who 's an emotional adolescent, they may admit fault in the matter but but then they counter with why the other person is more at fault. see know anybody like that huh? and so they have trouble really listening to the other person 's pain, disappointments, needs without becoming preoccupied with self and, and then Schizero describes the emotional adult who who can respect and love others without being. You know, without succumbing to judgmentalism or hypercritical behavior. The emotional adult doesn't expect anybody to be perfect in meeting their needs, whether it's a spouse or parents or their pastor or their boss or friends. They love people for who they are, the good and the bad, and not for what they can give or how they behave. Emotional adults take responsibility for their own thoughts and actions and feelings and goals. When there's stressed, the emotional adult does not fall victim to the blame game. And they can accurately assess strengths and limitations and capacities. And they are absolutely convinced that they're loved by Christ and they have nothing to prove. Those zones just really connected with me probably because I've lived in each of them. Which of these zones are you living in now? Three of them will cause you to stall. Three of them will. Three of them will. And, and, And wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great to, to, to enter into this um, machinery, or to have a piece of machine that could tell you where you are in each of those zones right now? Wouldn't that be something to, to experience or to go to have some sort of diagnostic tool? Do you want to know? I can suggest to you one of those diagnostic tools, okay? If you, if, you wanna, if you want to know where you are in terms of your emotional zone and you want to know pretty quickly just just enter vocational ministry <laughs> <laughs> and you'll find out real fast where you where the where the pastor is oh yeah yeah you say no yeah i mean is there is it, i mean listen to this is 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 there any other reason why Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now, why would Paul need to tell Timothy not to be resentful? Huh? See? You go into a local church, you think everybody wants what you want. <laughs> you know? and every, We're all on the same page. Wow, it's, it's tough. Ephesus was a tough post for Timothy. <sighs> Well, how can change happen? How can change happen? How can I desire God? Well, what happens is we often try to answer that question. We often try to overcome these barriers through what someone has called willpower Christianity. Willpower Christianity. And willpower Christianity is about about change from the outside in. Willpower Christianity scrubs the outside of the cup but forgets how filthy the inside is. Willpower Christianity. Willpower Christianity sees visible talents and abilities rather than the mysteries of the heart which only God can see. Willpower Christianity pays more attention to activities and busyness rather than solitude and stillness and scripture. Willpower Christianity says that the gift is greater than the altar that makes the gift holy. Willpower Christianity. And and willpower Christianity is really nothing more than, than whitewashed tombs. Willpower Christianity is really, Jesus said, willpower Christianity is really nothing more than just a dressed up corpse. Willpower Christianity produces the works of the flesh which will leave you exhausted emotionally and physically and mentally and spiritually. And church family, I know this. I've been there. I kind of feel like I am there. I kind of feel like I am there. I kind of feel like I need this message more than anybody else in this room. So you're free to listen in if you want. But I'm talking to myself today. So what's the answer? Oh, there is an answer. There is a word. There is a word. There is a word for those who are struggling to desire God. And the word is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That word can also be the word flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the the flesh. When you read sinful nature, think flesh. That's the word literally, Sarks. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not know what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. And then look at verse 22. Paul says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the, the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he says this in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. When I don't desire God, when I don't, what then, what does spiritual growth look like? How can change happen? Paul tells us here that he describes how change ha- happens here. And the metaphor that he uses is the metaphor of a tree, a fruit tree. The kind of change, the kind of growth, the kind of transition that comes from someone who doesn't desire God, the one who does desire God, is the kind of change that happens that you would expect to see on a fruit tree, a carpos tree. Spiritual growth is like fruit tree growth. There's no coincidence that Paul uses the term fruit. No coincidence at all. He's using that intentionally. So, say, so you want to know how spiritual growth happens? Well, go out to Curtis Orchard and take a stroll among the orchard there. And check out the apple trees. Go out to the fields. Go to the peach trees. Go to the fields and see the produce and look at the features and connect the dots. Here's what you'll see. You'll see that spiritual growth, loving God, loving people, you'll see that it's gradual. you'll see that it is inevitable, and you will see that it is Christ-driven.. Gradual? inevitable? Christ-driven. Think about Think about how gradual physical growth is. It's so gradual, it's so incremental, it's so bit by bit that you can, you can't see it. You see, have a picture of your kids there on the mantle, and then then you look and you say, you've grown, but you didn't, you weren't watching them grow, because it's so slow, it's so incremental. I think that's true spiritually as well. Spiritual growth is, is seasonal, slow, mysterious, it's, you don't always see dramatic overnight growth. Sometimes, it's, sometimes there's growth, there's springtime, blossoms, but other times it's winter. And there's no evidence of growth whatsoever. But that doesn't mean there isn't growth, it just means it's winter. Some of us, even though it's July, we feel like it's wintertime. We just don't feel like we're growing. We feel stalled. Maybe you are stalled, but maybe you're not stalled. Maybe it's just wintertime, and you just need to wait. I I think one of the concerns, just in thinking critically about taking an inventory like Reveal, and just in thinking critically is that that we would uh, have the mistaken assumption that spiritual growth is just one neat, smooth, 45-degree angle line and we're just going to keep ascending all. And you know that's not the way it is. It's not. It's a lot like the stock market up and down and up and down. You know? It is. And one of the things that we just need to understand is that you can't rush corn. You can't rush an apple tree. You've got to cooperate with nature's timetable, and nature's timetable is by far more predictable than God's. <laughs> huh? Make your plans, you make your plans, and then listen to heaven laugh. And we hear testimonies from people who say, Well, you know, I had this issue or I had this condition from God and I prayed and it went away. You know what? To that I say, Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's wonderful. But here's the deal for every one person who has an instant orange drink tang experience, there's 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 ten of us. There's ten of us who haven't. You know? And what we need to learn is that growth is not—it's not really something that you can just feel. It's something you measure. You can measure it. You can measure it. And you may not know that you've grown until trouble strikes, and then you say, "You know, I don't think I could." A few years ago, I never could have handled this. I never—I I never could have handled this years ago. You see, but see, so it's gradual. So give it time. All right? If it's winter in your life, you know what? Spring's coming. It is. And if it's summertime in your life, fall's coming. Growth is gradual. Growth is incremental. And growth is inevitable. Growth is inevitable because we're just not talking about fruit from any old tree here. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, you will grow if you have the Spirit of God in you. There will be change. You will be more loving and joyful and peaceful. You will be more patient and more kind. You must, you must. Take a look at this tree and listen to this story. Once upon a time, there was a huge boulder sitting on top of a little seed. And the boulder said, I win! I win, I win. But that seed found a little wedge in the boulder, a little dark crevice that it could barely see the crack of that sunlight, but there was just enough to sprout, just enough. And that boulder set to the little sapling, I win, I win, I win. The sapling squeaked, of course, you're so big, I'm so small. And it kept growing and growing and growing. And the boulder kept saying, I win! I win! And the tree kept growing, and the boulder kept boasting, I win! I win! And inevitably, that tree grew right through that rock, split that once mighty boulder into small-sized stones, even pebbles and little granules of gravel. And one morning, that tree stretched its limbs to the sky, To greet the morning sun and from below it chirped the remnants of that mighty boulder. I win! I win! And the tree looked down and said, oh, be quiet. (laughs) Tim Keller is a pastor. He says, you you are not saved by fruit. You're not. You are saved by fruit faith you are you're not saved by fruit you're saved by faith but you will never be saved by fruitless faith never so the question is is there fruit is there fruit and better still ask your spouse ask your friends is there fruit in my life what why is it after all these years you can't keep secrets why is it after all this time as a Christian you still have the secret sin in the dark? Why? You're, you're, you're resentful. Why is that? Why is it after all these years you get your feelings hurt so easily? Why? Why is it after all of these years the question, the question which determines whether or not you're going to be with God's people on the gathering or the question which determines whether or not you're going to pray or whether or not you're going to serve or whether or not you're going to open up the Bible. Why is it that After all these years, the question which determines these things is, well, I'll see how I feel at the time. Why? Why is that? You are not saved by fruit. You're saved by faith. But you will never be saved by fruitless faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through a faith which works. And notice here in these verses that that the fruit of the Spirit, Paul does not say that the fruit of the Spirit is leadership. Where the fruit of the Spirit is singing, or managing, or IQ, or stage presence, or charisma. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, in the margin of Galatians chapter 5, or down in the little footnote section at the bottom of the page, you should scratch 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because the fruit of the Spirit section here, and 1 Corinthians 13 on love, go hand in hand. Oh Yeah fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. What do we read in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, conceited, or proud. See, they go together. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that, I mean, he tells us something pretty sobering, which is this. You can teach you can teach incredibly. You can speak in tongues. You can mentally grasp prophetic mysteries. You can give away your money. You can do all of these things. But if you don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. Do you realize that it is possible to change lives by the talent of preaching, but fail to be changed by the very Christ you're preaching? You realize that? In fact, if people's lives are being changed through you, but you're not changing, you know what you need to do? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus right now. And if I could be so candid, church family, some of us are stalled here because we come and sit and come and sit and come and sit, and then we leave this place thinking to ourselves, you know, it's the same old thing every week. It's the same, it's the same. You know what? You're right, it is the same. It's the same thing. You come and you sit and you leave. And you wonder why you're stuck. You wonder why. And what we need to learn is that the things that provided growth in the early experiences that we had with Christ are not the things that will produce growth later on. I mean, how many years do you need to be in first grade before it gets old? And so early on we came and, and, and the, the fellowship of the gathering and the grace-filled, spirit-filled fellowship with the gathering and small group belonging and realizing biblical truth. I'm a child by God's amazing grace. Yes, and you serve, found a ministry here in the local church. Yes, but, but you see, there's going to come a point in time when this experience right here will not be as catalytic to your growth as it once was. See, that doesn't mean to stop coming. No. It means that there are, there's, it means there's more that God has. It means that if if you're sensing that, it just means that God is, has admitted you into graduate school faith, but you gotta leave Westview. You gotta leave Westview. You got to. You gotta. Now some things don't change. The Bible doesn't change. You'll always grow by immersing yourself in the Bible. You'll always grow through prayer. But you know, our serving, some of you need, it's Serving inside the church, that's wonderful. But you know what? We need to get outside these walls, getting into the community. I'm thinking about the 30 or so of us who went over to restoration last week. And we had table fellowship and serving at Salt and Light. And I'm thinking about the the 30 who went on the Dominican Republic trip. And God's called them into graduate school serving experiences of growth. And, And I'm talking about having spiritual conversations and i'm talking about realizing that a quiet time is just that quiet quiet where i just sit in silence before a holy god i love you and i want you to know that i've been here 19 years and i can say i can say that by this time you ought to be teachers now you ought to be some of you ought to be some of you ought to be doing this by now Growth is gradual, but growth is inevitable. Growth is gradual and growth is inevitable because growth is Christ-focused, Christ-driven. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5:17, "For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. If you want to grow in grace, if you want to grow in grace, you've got to crucify the flesh. Someone's going to have to get hurt. If you want to grow in grace, and Paul says, "Let the flesh die." And and Paul says, "I must keep In step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Oh, dancing with the stars. That's what that means. And the Holy Spirit is the star. He's trying to lead. Let him lead. Not you, him. Let the Holy Spirit lead. Let him lead because he has desires. Did you know that the Holy Spirit has desires? The flesh has desires. That's what Paul's telling us here. The flesh has desires, and the Holy Spirit has, and that word desire is a strong word. Epithumia, strong word. It's the word passion. The Holy Spirit has passion. It's the word lust. The flesh lusts. The Holy Spirit lusts. Who does he lust after? Jesus. Jesus. You see, you see, we're the bride. Jesus is the groom, and, and the Holy Spirit is the, the Holy Spirit's the best man and the maid of honor all together, and the Holy Spirit loves Jesus, and it always sees the beauty of Christ, always sees the beauty of Jesus, and is always prompting us, do you not see how beautiful the sun is? Do you not see how beautiful Jesus is? And that by fixing our eyes upon him, our desire grows. That's why Paul does not talk about the weeds of the flesh. That's why he talks about the works of the flesh. The works are what I do. The fruit is what I open myself up to let Jesus do. And so our role is just to be a gardener, you know. We just simply create the conditions through which the power of the seed does its work. And Galatians tells us, That there's two different passions going on. Two different lustings going on. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the spirit. Listen to the spirit. Listen to the spirit. Lust for Jesus. Yeah. That's it. Growth is gradual. Growth is inevitable. And growth is in Christ. Growth is in Christ. As I listen to the spirit. Who is drawing me and pulling me around the orbit of God's very own son. I want to give you an opportunity to listen here, okay? I want to give us, as a church family, an opportunity for some quiet time where we can gather and where we can just be with Jesus and gaze upon the groom. What's that look like? It it looks like the light's being dimmed. And it looks like for five or six minutes, sitting still before Jesus, okay, in total silence with this prayer right here. Lord Jesus. Help me desire you more than life itself.